Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Best Boss Ever podcast series. I'm your host, Carl Thomas. So the question is, who was the best boss you ever had? Why? And what did he or she do that resonated so strongly with you? More importantly, how are you applying what you learned? From veteran founders and CEOs to emerging next generation leaders, these men and women talk about their experiences in candid, fun, and insightful conversations. So stay tuned, because the hits just keep on coming. Rob Urbach is an innovative leader, a multiplier, as it were, making everyone around him smarter and more capable. As a result, his teams are noted for doing more with less, generating record-setting results in both good times and bad, and for creating winning partnerships. Urbach was named CEO of the Iditarod in July 2019 and has been driving relevance, thought leadership, and innovation in leading the last great race on Earth. Prior to the Iditarod, Rob served as the chief executive officer of USA Triathlon for six and a half years, overseeing all the day-to-day operations for the national governing body, the fastest growing sport in the U.S. Olympic movement at the time, USAT reached all-time highs in membership, youth participation, sanctioned events, certified coaches, and official clubs. And Rob led the campaign for NCAA varsity sports status for women. One of the most accomplished executives in the sports industry, Urbach possesses more than 20 years of proven leadership experience, including Courtview Capital Markets, Octagon, the FS Sports Group, a division of Clear Channel Communications, and he began his career working for the legendary sports agent David Falk, who famously represented Michael Jordan. A three-sport athlete and All-American tennis player in college, he went on to get his MBA from the Wharton School and has since completed 80 triathlons, including the Ironman World Championships in Kona, Hawaii. Hey, Rob, it's great to have you with us today. Welcome to the Best Boss Ever podcast series. We appreciate being here. I'm excited. I think listen to some of this podcast and it's an honor to be a guest. Well, we're happy to have you. And what we always do is ask the sort of fundamental and pivotal question. With a career like yours, is there a single boss, maybe more than one, that stands out as the best boss you ever had? Well, probably could have, have a few of those. And, and, and one of those you mentioned, which uh, I spent about 10 years under David Fox's tutelage. And David was certainly a maverick in the business and, and noted as a, a great, phenomenal negotiator, which was always good, except when you try to negotiate your salary with David, which was a little bit brutal. But he, uh, you know, was a very creative guy, challenging guy to work for. But at the end of the day, uh, I think he you know, respects you know, with talent and drive, and you know, David's a, a pretty is a self-made guy, so we got a lot of respect. And there's hundreds of stories. And I think what David did is he really learned a lot from the clients. So at the time, it was the Usu, the NBA, you know, Patrick Ewing, Alonzo Mourning, Michael Jordan, Dominic Wilkins, and really as the NBA took off, that business took off, and had some really good vision to say take Michael Jordan and help him transcend basketball. Obviously, it took his extraordinary unique talent to get there. 
But I think David did a really tremendous job guiding that and really being able to relate to the clients and, and still learn a lot from the clients. So that's what I think has helped me is, is learn a lot from everybody that I work with and really understand and be open to being outside the box and, and new perspectives and, and always trying to be a continuous improver and, and learning. And, you know, there were some tumultuous times, there's no doubt about it, because David is a very demanding man. But it's something that maybe toughened me up pretty quickly and, and learned to really be a good advocate for our partners and, and clients along the way. And I was also fortunate to work, you know, for Rick Dudley at, at Octagon. And Rick had, you know, worked for the NFL and Major League Baseball and NHL. And, you know, Rick had wise expertise and, and really good with uh, allocating resources across the world, which we were doing at the time when I was at Octagon. And, growing and divesting assets and acquiring assets and integrating those. So, and then working through a big companies from IPG and the parent of Octagon to Clear Channel with the parent of SFX had some pretty good mentors and into those from Mays family, from, you know, Randall Mays and, and Mark Mays. And then on the, the Clear Channel side, it was, you know, through SFX, it was the Becker family and, and the really dynamic entrepreneur, which was Bob Sullivan, who really had the vision to consolidate the business, to take it public. We, at that time, we were rolling up and buying assets around the world from the you know, Beckham's group in the UK, the Greg Norman's group there, and then learning from people that were able to see that vision and do those deals and and really execute on the ground. So it was learning a lot about both the vision side of it and the execution side of it that I was sort of developing uh, in my career. And there were some pretty strong personalities in, the, in that kind of a little bit of rough and tumble business. Well, that's really interesting. A couple of questions immediately come to mind. Would you say Falk was one of, if not the first agents, if you will, to actually understand the power of branding an athlete like Michael Jordan? Yeah, I think for David, it comes pretty natural. I think at one point there was a decision made that David didn't want to allow anybody to use Michael in basketball uniform. So no more, he's just another basketball phenomenal talent. And that enabled him at one point to arguably be one of the most recognizable person in the world. And he took him outside of basketball and did things like Space Jam, even all the advertising commercials that were done in the last five or six years of his career. And he's not on the basketball court. Uh, and, you know, I think David, you know, was given credit as coming up with Air Jordan and, you know, Alan Iverson, you know, the, the shoe called the answer, the shoe called the question. It was a pretty good brainstormer with those type of stuff. And even though it's not necessarily, you know, trained as a lawyer, but he's a pretty good distinctive marketer as well. Right. And fame, I mean, that's the acronym, right? For Falk's agency, Agreeing to become acquired by Bob Sillerman's SFX group back then, I mean, we're talking 20-something years ago, and Sillerman may have been one of the early guys that recognized the power of cobbling together what seemingly might be described as disparate assets, but pulling them all together under one roof and literally having the sum of the parts create a much, much larger hole. I think there's, there's, yes, I think that was for the beginning days when you, you hear this every day now that sports is entertainment, but back then those assets were separate and discreet. 
And so we were able to take all the sports businesses and everything from selling name and titles to big stadiums to concert sponsorships. But at the same time, we're rolling up the sports assets, which became Mark Creed Group and ProServe and Arn Tellum's agency and Jim Steiner's agency representing Jerry Rice. And so we ended up having a portfolio of household names across all sports and also selling the U2 tour at the same time because SFX then would go out and acquire the rights to you know, 100 dates across the world to U2 or Madonna was a big tour at that point in time. And we were able, I was part of a team that would go to Coca-Cola's of the world and say, you know, we want a percentage of your budget and we'll spend it across these assets and integrate. So there was a lot of market power on the sponsorship that was driven there. And then when Clear Channel comes in and buys the whole assets and you have those leading market in radio and billboards. And so we have a pretty big chunk of the you know, non-television head uh, time. We have radio, billboard, and experiential marketing. And you're integrating for activation agencies and all the agencies that, that come with that at the same time. So it was, yeah, I think it was a lot of value was created. You know, there was something like, number might be wrong, but 800 million or so that was spent acquiring the SFX assets. And then Clear Channel comes in and buys that for 3 billion 18 months later. And then about four or five years later, that was all spun off into what's now Live Nation. It's amazing. You know, that's the sort of trifecta, right? Athletes and artists, sport and entertainment, events, whether it's games or matches or concert tours, and then the overarching power of the media. You combine the television media on the sporting side and then overlay that with what Clear Channel brought to the table, as you mentioned, on radio and out out of home, billboards, if you will. That's a very compelling triangle of A, owning the talent, B, leveraging the events via sponsorship, and C, promoting all of the above via an amazing media platform. Yeah, absolutely is. And it's classic vertical integration. And back when you could still use the word synergy and not cringe about it, because there was a lot of executions to be done. And and I think the key in that though, Carl, was really the execution side of it. Because there's a lot of fiefdoms and you know, a lot of you know, the sports world at the time, at least, all the agencies were really more consortium of entrepreneurs. And so part of the job I had was try to integrate with best practices, put in centralized services and marketing of athletes and properties. And you know, that is really what I got into the trenches and you know, really learned a lot about management and you know, rolling sleeves up and then being you know, clear channel one and 15% in the bottom line. You know, earnings growth and trying to deliver upon that in the public environment, you know, have that kind of pressure and you learn from a lot of bosses along the way. Well, that's an interesting point you make because it, in the world of the private sector, whether or not Clear Channel is publicly traded is another story or, or SFX, point being private or public, you, you, one, the executive team needs to deliver against a strategy with execution and deliver a bottom line. And, you know, in these kinds of conversations, it's it's pretty easy to talk at the high level and get, you know, sort of caught up with the wonder and, and specter of athletes, artists, great tours, whether it's you 2 or Madonna or whether it's Michael Jordan. But at the end of the day, execution delivers against the PL. So talk a little bit about 
the focus, the pressure, or the expectation that you had in those days? Yeah, no, it, it was about making all these assets work. Some very strong personalities that were used to, you know, running their own shows and being very siloed. And the notion is, and this really came, you know, it worked a little bit with Randall Mays, who was CFO of Clear Channel, and really tried to be as seamless as we could across all those platforms. And I'll give you some examples. You know, we had great access to the corporate world. I can remember sitting with Howard Schultz in his Starbucks office. And I got there because of his ownership of the Sonics at the time. So I was able to work my way into Howard's office. But my goal was to try to get Starbucks as a client for broader entity for the entertainment side of it. And we talked about Gary Payton for the whole meeting, but ended up getting downstream to somebody that ended up being a double shot Starbucks promotion with Jewel, the morning concert, the ADM concert in New York City as part of a promotion for their new drink they were promoting and ended up being a client of broader SFX. And so there were some big wins along those lines, but it was hard to get everybody on the same page. And I think that you know, I was on sort of regional board that was trying to drive and they measured these cross-pollination transactions, which were certainly easier said than done, but it was really about trying to be as, you know, egoless as possible and what your assets were valued at so we could try to find ways to win, which was really, really pretty hard. So, you know, we drove, I remember, you know, being measured on, you know, what millions are we driving across platforms when we're taking a Starbucks to the NBA ownership relationship of Howard's into the music side of the business. So we uh, learned a lot through that process. And I think there was a lot of challenges in looking at new ways to do business. And sometimes there's a lot of give and take internally. Well, no doubt about that. You know, so you, you go from that, what I, I'll call actually a pinnacle of a career when SFX trades to Clear Channel. And then you, you find your way into the world, I think, from Octagon, into the world of, of NGBs. Share with us a little bit about how you got to USA Triathlon and sort of what actually inspired you to go there. Yeah, so I had done triathlon early in my life. I, you know, way back in high school, I got turned on by reading Sports Illustrated story on the Ironman and said, hey, you know, I want to do that. It just resonated with me. I didn't know any triathletes, very little about it, but somehow I found my way to, to the start line uh, a couple of years later at a pretty young age and to do Kona for the first time way, way back in 1982. So if you're doing the math, I did it when I was seven, so right, so I was, I was pretty young. So I had triathlon off and on, had an interest in it, and interested in Olympic movement, you know, just a huge passion play for me, and not having been in the NGB space at all. So it was quite a transition of change of culture in coming from sort of the, you know, heavy work now for two public companies, three, and IPG, which owned Octagon, SFX, and Clear Channel. It was all about bottom line. And coming to an NGB, it was really more about whose agenda and not so much measurable in terms of the bottom line. So it was really an entirely different culture. And I came out of Colorado with the sort of a, you know, the euphemism on me at the time was I was East Coast. If that meant, you know, hard charging, work hard. And Colorado was a little more there for lifestyle. And NGB, it's more of a passion play. So I had to really learn a lot that not everyone was wired the same way I was. And 
you know, I had to be able to relate to a little bit different mindset in that world. You know, having worked and been based, worked around the world, based mostly in DC and worked a lot in New York during that period. And it was a little bit of a different change and certainly a different change on different types of board that you would have, you know, at an NGB. And USA Triathlon had some pretty public struggles on the board level. And I lived through a lot of that and a lot of that turmoil, but it was a great role for me. I had a good staff, had a great mission. And the triathlon world is a, is a really great community. So it was a challenge. For sure, uh, it was a challenge because there were so many competing agendas. At the time, there was a pretty two different factions on the board. One that was wanted to direct more resources and money to the program. Others wanted to put it more into the age group program, and they were very. It was very much half the you know partisan <laughs> partisan board. So I came in with the sharing the win mantra, and this is what I kind of presented and you know how I sort of interviewed through the system that it you know, wasn't a, a zero-sum game. You know, the more Olympic medals you can generate, the better success in the national stage, the more awareness for triathlon, the more opportunity to inspire more membership, more sponsors, more coaches, more race directors who can make better livings in the sport, and try and bridge the gap that way. And that became, sharing the win became the mantra that I've used internally for sharing the win for someone doing their first triathlon or overcoming, you know, diabetes meds or metabolic issue or alcoholism through the sport of triathlon. So, you know, I came in with that and I think that, you know, how I kind of got everybody energized around that mantra. So it was uh, still a difficult process, but I had a, had a really enjoyable, made a pretty good run over that six and a half year period. And we finally uh, did win that Olympic medal with Glenn Jorgensen winning the gold in Rio and kind of dominated the Paralympic triathlon space as well. Start the NCAA program that you mentioned. So I'm pretty proud of the track record there and a lot of stuff that we did. We really spent a lot of time developing the national championships, which was a pretty small race to be aware of this. You know, when I got there, the national race was maybe 1,200, 1,500 people in national championships. Now it's one of the biggest race in the country, over 5,000 plus, it's, you know, at that level. So we put a lot of emphasis on making the Olympic distance. You know, a little more, hey, you know, Ironman, which is, of course, you said triathlon sanctions. There's only 36 Ironman, full Ironman or so in the country. So it's really a small percentage of the triathlon space, but it has such massive mind share. So got a lot of respect for Ironman. They're great partners. And Andrew Messick and I were pretty close. But also, I think we put a lot of emphasis on the short course racing. And that's really obviously more sustainable from a lifestyle standpoint. So there's a lot that was done there that... You know, I uh, worked through a lot of challenging times. We had a lot of controversy and also was, we learned a lot from some of our board members. Well, listen, sport, sport and controversy go together. And that's one of the things that makes it interesting because it's really, I mean, you, you and I both know this. It's really easy to manage in the good times. The metal, if you will, really comes to the fore in the not so good times, whether you're dealing with controversy or uh, a sort of dissected board, right? I mean, that's, you work for a board of directors as a CEO and your job is to do the most effective job you can in a two-way street. One, managing an organization, if you will, managing down and creating a culture and making sure that everybody in the organization is on the same page with the same vision and that you give them what they need to be successful, and then managing up. I mean, you walk into a board, I don't know how many people were on the board at, at USA Triathlon. The interesting thing about the NGB world is 
typically those boards are made up of all volunteers and they come from disparate geographies and they come from disparate points of view and perspective. And so you assemble a board at an NGB and it's not like, you know, you get 11 skilled business people, men and women in a public company environment. You get what you get at at the board level in an NGB. And that seemingly is a really, really interesting skill and not an easy one to be able to manage a group like that. Yeah, thanks. We attempted to more transition to more of a competency-based board. Uh, which, you know, changed the bylaws and moved in that direction. But it's still, it's still a big process. So that takes the board with much mobility and humility to say, hey, we're not with the right people to lead the organization this size. I mean, we were such triathlon and grew it to around 20 million or so in revenue at its peak. And it became, you know, pretty complicated with all the various derivatives and various factions and interest groups. You know, biathlon, duathlon, NCAA program, Olympic program, para. Etc. And it was pretty challenging. But I will tell you, back to the subject here, one big boss, that, uh, not a direct boss, but a mentor of mine, I'm sure you probably know, was Chuck New, Chuck Weibels, who was tremendous uh, having run swimming and doing you know, kayak and other rare space. And, and Chuck was certainly a mentor of mine in, in that movement in Colorado and was, uh, I think, a really great leader in the space. I love Chuck Wilgus. For our audience here, Chuck passed away from cancer after a fairly long fight, but he was the CEO of USA Swimming. But here's an interesting bit for you, Rob. Chuck and I first met back in the mid-80s when he was at Hilton Head, South Carolina, and he race-directed our first national championships for then the Bud Light U.S. Triathlon Series, which also was the imprimatur globally for what became the Olympic distance, the 1,500-meter swim, 40K bike, 10K run. Yeah, no, absolutely. And another uh, gentleman from that era is is now not with us, is Mike Plant, and he used to work alongside Mike for years. And and we can talk about Les McDonald, who's another interesting person. Um, So I sort of, on the tail end of his kind of exit, spending some time with, as part of uh, you know, representing the U.S. and the ITU level, so there's the Chuck was a, a really, I think, a great blueprint on from the NGB CEO and leadership manages constituencies and the way he worked with his board and the way he developed goodwill and trust and a great communicator. So I, I learned a lot. You know, not a direct boss, but I think I learned a lot from Chuck. Well, he was an extraordinary individual, and you mentioned two others. Mike Plant and Les McDonald, I knew them both extremely well and worked alongside them for years and years in disparate functions, but nonetheless, uh, two really extraordinary individuals. And by the way, I'm going to leave the subject of triathlon with what I believe is the high watermark for USA triathlon historically, and that's Gwen's win in Rio. That was... I mean, I watched it live, and it was such an extraordinary race. And she she just displayed all of the athletic elements that you would want in a gold medal winner. She was awesome. You know, Gwen is, 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 is just a great person as well, and a great competitor. And the great story there from the use of triathlon point is that uh, the vision there to go out and find swim runners and make them triathletes 
you know, from a recruitment, proactive recruitment program. So Barb Lindquist, who Stanford swimmer, you probably know and live in triathlon, didn't reach out to Glenn. She's an accountant at Ernst & Young in Milwaukee and had good swim times and run times in D1 at Wisconsin and colleagues, so it had all the markings. She'd still probably be an accountant. And uh, it's really a great story. It just was a great fit for, for her, her life, and, and for the world to see her ascendancy in the sport and what a great winner she is and great competitor. So it was great to work with Gwen and, and everybody around that from high performance side. Well, listen, you mentioned Barb Lindquist, who I also know well. She and I share uh, two interesting bits of history, right? We were both inducted into the USA Triathlon Hall of Fame on the same evening. And then seven years later, we were both inducted into the ITU Hall of Fame on the same evening. So I'm very fond of Barb and her role and leadership in the recruitment and athlete development side is extraordinary. And Gwen is the result of that. And you should be super proud of, of that accomplishment on your, on your watch. Rob, let's move into what you do now, because the Iditarod, you called it the last great race on earth, and it may well be. So how did you get there? Share with the audience exactly what it is, because it's really an extraordinary event. So thanks. So the Iditarod is uh, an historic race with man and dogs. So it's a Navy athlete called a musher and a dog team of 14 dogs that travel from Anchorage to the city of Nome across the Alaska wilderness, which is largely 100% off the road system. So it is, you know, not accessible unless you can fly there or unless by dog team in the winter. And it is not, not a self-supported race. So we support the race from a veterinary standpoint, from a safety standpoint, but they're largely on their own for that thousand mile plus journey that the winners take almost nine days to finish. So it's a really extraordinary event of the, the, the athletes need to be navigators, sleep deprivation ninjas, super tenacious, they are doing a lot of running. The winners are at least running maybe 10 miles a day off the sleds in various conditions. All kinds of weather and water crossings. So there can be massive storms. There can be warmth that causes a lot of overflow and slushy trail of water. And they're dealing and navigating through that. At the same time, have to take care of their dogs first and foremost. Feed their dogs. Make sure they're all okay. Decide which dogs are going to rest. Where I'm going to put them in the team in front or the back or in the middle. There's a lot of strategy, and it's really a remarkable event. And, you know, obviously, coming from triathlon world, the triathlon, especially long course races, are one long day. But in the day, you know, there's a nice bed, a hot meal, a shower. These guys are out there, whatever sleep they get, a couple hours a day is lying down next to their dogs. So it's all outside. They don't go inside the entire time. And we support that and they largely through the air. We're in the Ditterrand Air Force of so 30 planes, a couple of helicopters. And we stream the whole thing live through a satellite system and get into a subscriber network. So it's kind of an event, an event. And uh, it's just remarkable. It's a long history going back to the diphtheria outbreak in the city of Nome that threatened to wipe out the community and they couldn't reach it by aircraft. So dogs sleep, 
that docks led team black serum in the gnome and saved that community. And this commemorates the history of that event and commemorates the history of the sled dog culture as how the populations were settled. These mostly hunting and fishing subsistence camps are now there's a bunch of native populations along the Didlock course, so small communities, maybe 150, 200 people that are really there just in barter society still and trading, you know, uh, hunting and fishing for, for goods and services. And we use those communities as our base camps along the trail. So it's 50th anniversary is coming up in March. 50th, right? 5-0. 5-0. So I'm really excited. The competitors are just, I'm in awe of what it takes to, to finish, just to enter and all the challenges they overcome. So that's uh, what the Iterod is. And I knew very little about it before I got here, but I think from being in the triathlon space and USA Triathlon sanctioning 4,000 events a year. I knew a little about events, knew a little about sponsorship, knew a little bit about challenges. And the Iditarod packs everything, and it's, it's all that and more. So how does a musher, that's the name of the human, right? right. He or she is a musher. And they're essentially the head coach of 14 dogs. So they've got to feed them, make sure they're in shape, take care of injuries, watch all the things that a head coach would watch. How does a musher actually enter and get accepted in the field? Yeah, so they have to qualify through a series of qualification races. We oversee about 20 of these qualifiers, but they're really takes years to get there. So most of them, I mean, the rookies rarely finish in the top 20. It's sort of like they, even the experienced guys never have a perfect race. A lot of decisions that are made. So they're really those that are all dog whispers. They understand when a dog's gait is slightly off and how to move that dog. They'll talk about being emotionally attuned with their dogs because it's not the dogs need to trust the driver, the musher. And yet the dogs also need to get along with each other. And so there's a lot of ways that they communicate with those dogs that imparts the trust and goodwill of the musher and how, you know, there's a lot of crises going to happen. Right. You know, along the way, every you did a ride, every musher will say, at some point, I'm going to laugh. At some point, I'm going to cry. And at some point, I'm going to smile. And so how do you manage through that range? It's the grace is so volatile from being too warm where you can't run your dogs all out during the day when you race hard at night to going through this massive storm where it might be snowing two feet in one day and there's no visibility <laughs> and getting lost out there. So they're not using GPS. They have to navigate. And I think it's that whole dynamic of that experience that takes really a long time to get to the Diderot level and then a long time to be competitive. Well, right. I mean, you know, just hearing you describe it, you know, you just want to watch it on TV or you, you don't want to actually do it. But, you know, for the audience, give us a little sense of how many women, how many men. And I'll preface that by saying that, at least for me, I recall the name Susan Butcher. Uh, she won the Iditarod. I think you and I were talking earlier four different times. I don't know if they were consecutive. I can't remember. I don't know over what span of time those four victories were posted. But what's the sort of balance between men and women, and particularly around a Susan Butcher who, and you tell me, is there any other musher that won the Iditarod four times? Uh, yes, there are men, but Susan was the, the pioneer 
from the female side and has really shown you know, that was one of the, maybe the best example of women being competitive with men in, in a big endurance sport. So there's a lot that the mushrooms do physically. I mean, there's, there's, there's sleds are always breaking. They've got to fix, they got to carry, they got to push them out of the slushy ice, a lot of physical labor in a way in the race. And a lot of, you know, their, the sleep deprivation is pretty massive. They'll be hallucinating. They fall off the sleds. They're getting hurt off and on, falling off. So the toughness she's shown that women can compete. So the field now is about 25% women, has been for the last few years. And there are plenty of women that can win the race. So she was the pioneer for that. But it is um, it was pretty unique. I think she was sports person of the year in 1985 on Cover Sports Illustrated and became this women's part of women's empowerment sports movement. She was a a really the embodiment of that and so well respected along the way. So it takes a certain kind of human. You know, it just takes, I, you know, I've been around the endurance space, as we both have, and it's, you know, it's a whole different level of mental toughness. I think they really have to be really amazing at dealing with the stress that comes, your plans go haywire from day one when the weather changes dramatically. They typically have a plan of when they're going to rest, when they're going to run, when they're going to feed, when they're going to try to sleep. And they all say, that, you know, it really never really gets executed that way. And so many crazy things can happen. Uh, Dallas TV has won the race now five times. Won his first time. He was in third place. He thought he finished in third because there was a massive storm and the two in front of him got lost. And he comes to the finish line and they tell him he won. He can't believe it. So you'll see crazy things like that. You'll see sprint finishes over 10 days, which is, a, there's some great footage of this. So there's this great history. There's, Buffalo and moose and polar bear and wolves. And there's, <laughs> and there's a whole protocol because moose block the trail and, and moose are actually pretty aggressive. And so right. you have to learn how to deal with that. And that's a whole other story. So every year there's, there's something. Allie Zirkle is a volleyball player from the University of Pennsylvania. And she's been second three times. Oh, wow. And great competitor. But this year, you know, she fell off and had a tough crash and got a concussion and the air lifted out. That was our only helicopter rescue this year. There were three helicopter rescues the year before. So, you know, it can be pretty challenging out there. They do have an SOS button they can push. We track them. They can't track themselves. Right. So a lot of safety precautions. And certainly from the dog side, there's, there's a veterinary check at, all, at 26 checkpoints. So all the dogs are really well taken care of. So it's managing... You know, the dog side of it too, and the strategy around it, you know, it's just, you know, every race plan, you can't say I'm going to, you know, push 300 watts on the bike in this section because you don't know what that section is going to look like when you get there. Right. And how many people on your full-time staff, Rob, on a sort of a year-round basis? And I and imagine when race month comes, that number dramatically expands because of the logistical requirements. But how many folks on your team on a year-round basis? Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we have a, so we got 1,500 people it takes to run the Iditarod with. Right. And, but we have, you know, full-time people working on the events, only around a dozen, but we have a retail store, we have a dog touring business, we have other businesses that we run, but the staff's pretty small, you know, for a full, it's a lot of contractors. So we've got a couple dozen people that are really full-time with us and we ramp up and, like I mentioned, our 30 pilots and, 
And uh, we have 55 veterinarians that work the race and, and a lot of logistics and communication people and a lot of volunteers. Man, I'm seeing the documentary before my very eyes. I mean, the, the, the story of building it, managing it, running it, and then taking care of humans and dogs all along the way is, is really uh, an extraordinary effort. Before we, we go into our regular bits here, we've got a few minutes left. When is next year's race? How do people dial into it? What's the best way to consume the content and, and follow the story? Yeah, thanks. So we kick off the race. It always kicks off on the first Saturday in March, which is March 6th, I believe. And we stream the entire race live on our own internal direct-to-consumer channel called The Insider. You can be reached off Iditarod.com. So we have on there, you can see, we do a documentary every year. So we have 12 plus, last 12 years been a race documentary. Now there's some remarkable video. You'll see that what makes the race great is the Vista of Alaska as well. So you'll see Northern Lights, which you haven't seen those purple and orange lights. You'll see dogs looking up at Northern Lights. My favorite is at night is the, the athlete musher wears the headlamp. You can see the dogs, snow coming down. It's a really remarkable thing to see that live, but not that many people get to Alaska to watch the race. Right. So it's really best through our 24 hour day live stream. We had two planes for our camera crew, six snow machines and eight drone pilots. So we cover hundreds of miles every day through our stream and something that we could really done really well because we have to figure out how to keep batteries charged at minus 30 below and dynamics like that. And we're hopefully going to migrate to Elon Musk's uh, satellite system this year for faster uploads. So (laughs) we're in the process of putting it together. Every year we try to get better at this. It's hard. And so there's sometimes hard to get the signal off the course. You know, a generator will go out because it's too cold and the propane doesn't go below 30 below. And so we lose our upload link. Uh, but we're trying to fix, fix all those issues. And, and but it's, we, show, we show a really good product. And uh, you can be a subscriber off of our, from our website. That, that's great information. For, for everybody listening, if you've never dialed into this, you, you've got to check it out. Next March, Iditarod.com, a 24-7 live stream. And you'll, you'll learn more than you ever thought you would. And you'll get to see some amazing landscape across the wilderness of Alaska and some amazing athletes, both human and dogs. Rob, we've got a few minutes left here. We do these three regular bits. Um, I know you're ready. So the very first one, the favorite mistake from your business career, oxymoron, I know, but the mistake that you learned the most from. You know, I'm I, sure I, I've made a lot in my career and probably still, still do. And I think a lot of it comes through not really pressure testing an initiative, a thought, a strategy. And so, you know, I mean, I did a ride and we did, I wanted to get involved in the gaming side of it. So we put a lot of energy and resources into uh, launching a trifecta, which you could sort of bet on, but then we kind of ran into some regulatory issues and didn't really have fully vetted out. So I had to backpedal from that one and you know, really got super excited about it, thought it would drive a lot of interest and relevance and take advantage of what's happening in the betting space. But 
probably didn't really fully take the time to, to pressure test it. So sometimes for me, it's, you know, trying to move too fast. <laughs> and I know sometimes you can say you can't move fast enough, but at least we fail pretty fast at that. Right. Calculated risk said another way, right? Yeah, right, right. All right. The next one, your favorite female artist or band? Well, you know, there's, uh, I, there's a lot of female artists that, that, that I like and listen to from uh, Cheryl Crow to Liz Fair to Julian Hatfield. But the one I'm going to throw out here uh, is probably underappreciated, Carl, and that's Amy Mann. So let me take it through quickly on the career. From Till Tuesday, voices carry, songwriter, great singer, plays the bass, to the Magnolia, Magnolia soundtrack, and Save Me. And just a great singer-songwriter and still doing it at 60 today. So Amy Mann, folks. I love those sleepers. Amy Mann, dial into that one. Last one, the pithy one. We all know words matter, especially in a leadership position. What you say, what you don't say, uh, what you do, what you don't do. Your favorite word and why? Conscious. And to me, that represents you know, being open, being curious, really impacting and learning from the environment and taking personal responsibility and courage. And I think it's as a leader, trying to be a conscious leader as much as I can and not to justify, not to blame, not to, not to be defensive. And those are probably some, you know, hardwired default modes and always try to um, be conscious in how I would approach people, uh, situations and opportunities. Be conscious, be present. Great advice, Rob, and a great word. Listen, thanks so much for being a part of it today. I can't thank you enough for the wisdom and the stories that you shared. And we're all looking forward to Iditarod 2022, Iditarod.com. Thanks, Carl. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts. You can also find us on Spotify, Google, Pandora, and many others. Please visit our website, at thebestbossever.com, where you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and LinkedIn. Until next week, remember, words matter.